Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. Man, the church gives us a veritable smorgasbord this morning to reflect on in the scriptures, and uh, I kind of had like preacher's paralysis looking at all the readings this weekend. I just, like, I don't know where to start. So I'm going to narrow in our focus just to the second reading, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's essentially the salutation that we had to the letter that he wrote to them, the first letter he wrote. It's it's like the, the, just the very beginning, just the, the greetings part of it. But there's a lot that's packed in there. And you might have missed it, so I'm just going to read it again. He says this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to you, have been, to you who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, with all those everywhere who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's two sentences. Paul would have gotten an F in English class, uh, like where I was growing up. Give me like a comma, semicolon, somewhere here, Paul. Anyway, two sentences. I want to zero in on the midst, a clause that he has in the midst of this greeting. You, You who have been sanctified in Christ, in Christ Jesus, comma, and called to be holy. That's what I want us to look at. There's something odd about this. It's odd, but it's also deeply illuminating if we press into it because the word that we are receiving, this word that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, it's living and effective and it has something piercing and powerful for us to consider this morning. So he's writing, of course, like we said, to the Corinthians, but let's just make it a little bit more personal. Let's just... uh, In our own imagination, let's just assume that he's writing to our community here at Sacred Heart because the church in Corinth was probably about this size. Probably wasn't much bigger than the gathering here this morning. So it's uh, the letter to the Sacred Heart-ians, okay? So just put that in your mind. He says, you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That is, you have been made holy. That's what the word sanctified means, right? You've been made holy. This has been, this reality has been accomplished in you. Past tense, right? This has happened. You have been made holy. When and how? How has that happened? At your baptism. At your baptism. Every single one of us, just like every single one of the Corinthians that Paul's writing to Like, by being baptized, we have been sanctified, right? That is, made holy. We've been healed from the wound of original sin. We've made into a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the filial identity, is how the catechism puts it. We've been given the deepest identity of Jesus, the beloved Son. We've been made a child of God. Those are the three things that are accomplished in the sacrament of baptism. Powerful realities. Powerful realities. We have been made holy, is the point. And yet, Paul continues speaking to the same community of the baptized, of those in Corinth, the sacred Hartians, okay? He says that we are also called to be holy, called to become holy, become something that you aren't yet. Do you see why this is odd, right? He's pitting right against each other these two sentences, you who have, you who have been sanctified and you who are called to be sanctified. Well, which is it, Paul? Paul? Which is it? 
It's both. It's both. We are living this already reality and this not yet reality. That's part and parcel of Catholic theology that Christ has accomplished our redemption and he is accomplishing our redemption. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming, right? Already and not yet. Let me try and like offer an analogy to kind of unpack this a little bit for us this morning. It's the analogy actually that that God gives us through the scriptures, through especially the writings of St. Paul, his letter to the Ephesians. The analogy, of course, is the spousal analogy, the analogy of married love as the icon, the prototype of what the Christian life is. Okay, so, not being married myself, full disclosure, uh, I don't have a wife at home, at least not in the sacramental, you know, like y'all do, okay? Now, I don't know this from personal experience, but I do a lot of marriage prep, I do a lot of weddings, but it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, married people, when a couple finally gets married, like when they finally get to the altar on their wedding day, when they've said those vows and they've exchanged those rings, like you've reached the finish line, like all the hard work is done, right? It's just just beginning. (laughs) Sorry, Bill. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, of course not. Of course not. It's just beginning. That's exactly right. It's just beginning. The hard work is not behind you. The hard work, in many ways, is ahead of you, right? It's not as though you've finally reached this destination of, you know, your wedding day, and now all that you have to look forward to are these romantic candlelit dinners and long walks on the Wadsworth beaches, right? That's not... How this works? That's not how this works. Of course not. It's just the beginning of the adventure. The, the wedding is a day, but the marriage is the lifetime, right? That's how this works. Like, now that you've said these vows, now you have to live into them and out of them, right? You have to make good on this promise. That there's a gigantic yes that you have said, but then it has to be followed up by a million other yeses that do get interrupted by a million little no's. And that's why you come to the confessionals here and here, right? But it's a big yes followed up by a million other yeses. That's how this works. But it is true. It is true to say that after the wedding day, an objectively new reality has come into being that wasn't there beforehand, right? Something new has been brought into being through those vows, through that exchange of consent. And like that thing that has happened, namely getting married, it is the precondition for the thing that will go on the rest of their lives, which is to live out the gift of marriage. You see what I'm saying, right? So something objective has happened, and now something like can continue to happen. There's an already and a not yet reality to this. They've become one. On the day of your wedding, you became one, but now you have to seek through years of love and commitment and communication and conversations and suffering and joys and sorrows and forgiveness and mercy and all of it and vulnerability and sharing in all of that you become one and now you through all of that you become progressively more and more one right that's the idea like ideally I would imagine like what you knew about your spouse on the day of your wedding pales in comparison to what you know about them now all these years later. Like the love that you had for them then pales in comparison to the love that you have for them now. The depth of relationship that you had then pales in comparison to the depth that you have now. That's how this works. 
Like, this is what parallels, friends. This is the analogy that parallels our relationship with Christ. As long as we continue to remember that this story of Christianity, like, the framework for understanding it is not a juridical framework in the sense that Christ the judge is simply meeting out verdicts for guilty sinners. No, no. The framework for understanding this relationship is one of romance and love and passion and pursuit. He identifies himself as the bridegroom. Over and over again, the image for salvation is that of a wedding feast. The, the, the matrix for understanding this relationship is romance, is deep intimacy. Like, by your baptism, you and I, we were definitively united to him. The catechism, for those of you who are doing the catechism in a year with Father Mike Schmitz, the catechism says, I think it's paragraph 1617, Ooh, wouldn't that be awesome if I knew that off the top of my head? Someone's going to fact check me. I don't know. But I think it's 1617. It says that baptism is a nuptial mystery. That baptism itself is a nuptial mystery. Meaning that when we are baptized, we are united to the bridegroom. That's what happens effectively, sacramentally, mystically. United to the bridegroom. That he who is the all-holy one right, the all-holy one, he's the all-holy one, joins his holiness to our humanity. We become sanctified. We are now set apart. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, who is the love exchange between Father and Son. It's, the Holy Spirit's not just a, like a bird. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the person of love. And we are filled with the person of love. At our baptism, made into a child of God, something objective happens, right, on that level of marriage. That's why after you get married, you get a marriage certificate. After you get baptized, you get a baptism certificate, signifying that something definitive has happened. Christ the bridegroom has joined himself to us. And yet the work, the work is only just beginning. Just like the work of marriage, it's only just beginning. Because the call of the spiritual life is to become more and more and more of what I already am. United to Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, to allow the union to deepen. Pope St. John Paul II, he put it this way. He says this, St. Paul calls the nuptial union of Christ and the church a great mystery. This is Ephesians chapter 5. The union of Christ and the church, Paul calls it a great mystery. Contemplating on this mystery, Paul exclaims, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the church, this communion of men with God, in the love that never ends, is the purpose which governs everything. The call to enter this communion is the universal call to holiness. So Second Vatican Council, the great thing that, one of the great things that it brought out very explicitly was the universal call to holiness. Universal call to sanctity. Not just simply for priests, religious deacons and bishops and popes, but the laity, you average lay faithful, you are called to enter into this thing called the great mystery, this deep intimacy with God, is what the church is saying. And then he says this, and holiness, right, this is what we're talking about, holiness is measured according to the great mystery in which the bride responds with the gift of love to the bridegroom. You are the bride. 
He is the bridegroom. Holiness, the church is saying, is measured according to this great mystery. It's measured according to our willingness to open the depths of our hearts to him. Like you and I, what we often do just so frequently is that we often measure holiness according to our own self-perfection. Heresies, they take a long time to die, and they actually don't really die. They just kind of go underground and they come up later. We are still, so many of us in the American church, we are all Pelagians. This heresy from the early church that said, I can save myself by my own efforts, right? That we identify our addictions and vices and our weaknesses, and we work really hard to get rid of them. We work really hard to get rid of them. We think that being holy is kind of like the same thing as being smart. Like if I work really hard, if I put in the effort, right? Holiness is something that I can accomplish on my own. If I, if I journal enough, if I read enough scripture, if I pray enough rosaries, if I do enough holy hours, by my own discipline, by my own efforts, I can make myself holy. Friends, just, just give up on that today. Just let that go. Because that is not true. It's not true. Holiness is what happens when you and me, when we who are Christ's bride, continually open up those parts of our hearts and our lives to his gift of tender mercy. Holiness is the fruit of communion with him. It's not, it's not the thing that I can accomplish on my own, and then Jesus looks at me and says, oh, you're looking pretty good. Now let's get together. No, holiness is the fruit of communion. It's the fruit of letting him come close, allowing him to mingle with the earth, right? We hold this treasure in earthen vessels, Paul says. I'm going to quote another pope. It's going to be a three-pope homily. Here's Pope Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. This is when he was Joseph Ratzinger. He says this, In the human dream of a perfect world, holiness is always visualized as untouchability by sin and evil. We tend to think in terms of black and white, to cut out and reject mercilessly whatever we consider negative. But Christ's holiness, which is the only holiness we want to pay attention to, right? Christ's holiness, Christ's holiness expressed itself precisely as mingling with sinners to the point where he himself was made to be sin. He has drawn sin to himself made it his lot, and so revealed what true holiness is. Who wants to know what true holiness is? Anybody? Oh, okay, only a few of us. All right, I'm done. (laughs) Who wants to know what true holiness is? Please raise your hand. Thank you. Okay, here we go. True holiness is not separation, but union, not judgment, but redeeming love. Is there not revealed in the unholy holiness of the church as opposed to man's expectation of purity, God's true holiness, which is love, love which does not keep its distance in a sort of aristocratic, untouchable purity, but mixes with the dirt of the world in order thus to overcome it. Friends, like St. Paul is telling us, you've been made holy and you are called to be holy. If that's what you want, then you must let Jesus mix and mingle with the dirt of your world 
Seek union with your heart, your world, your, your worst parts, your most shameful parts, all of it. Like Martin Luther, right, the Protestant reformer, he saw our human condition as unredeemable. He saw us as dung heaps, unredeemable dung heaps that God in his goodness simply coats over with righteousness like snow, like a blanket of snow on a pile of dung. In, or, in other words, like we never actually become holy. We only ever appear holy. We appear righteous. I think a lot of us are really determined at least simply to appear righteous. But the Catholic view, the Catholic view is very different. We're not dung heaps that get covered in snow. No, we are like compost piles. We're compost piles, rich and fertile soil. John Paul II, again, he says this, The sacraments infuse holiness into the terrain of man's humanity. They penetrate the soul and body with the power of holiness. Do you see this difference? Do you see the difference? Friends, I'll end with this. This parish of ours is filled with so many amazingly beautiful people. Over and over again, I've been stunned by the beauty of Sacred Heart. Many good people striving for holiness, striving for personal sanctity, striving to have holy marriages, holy families. But we have to remember that holiness is not a self-created result. It's not something that I do on my own. It's the fruit of communion. It's the fruit of union. It's by letting him get close, like really, 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 really close. If you don't give him permission to come in, if you don't say yes, if you don't open your heart, it's not going to happen. Last quote. This is Pope Francis. Then we'll land the ship. When you feel the temptation to dwell on your own weakness, raise your eyes to Christ crucified and say to him, Lord, I am a poor sinner, but you can work the miracle of making me a little bit better. Amen. Amen.